Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Britt. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Mindy McGrath and Ryan Hummel to talk about what's trending now. Ryan, what headlines have you been following lately? Hi, Jen. There was a bipartisan act that took place last week that didn't revolve around daylight savings time, and it really is a major victory for advocates on healthcare workers' well-being. It is known as the Dr. Lorna Breen Act, and for those of you that don't know, Dr. Lorna Breen was a physician that committed suicide early days of the pandemic, and she was a physician that, after dialogue with her family and friends, realized that there was really nowhere for her to go, and she was undergoing a lot of stress in those early days of the pandemic. And we know that that situation occurred often and still occurs to this day, specifically in hospitals and health systems. And this new act actually earmarks funding to provide mental health wellness to frontline healthcare workers. And why that's important is we've seen many health systems and hospitals really put some focus around healthcare workers and their well-being, but many times it's out of the budget process, it is outside of the operating funds, and it's a little bit off the side of their desk. This act enables and allows for grants to be processed and used by health systems, which is really big. You know, I think it sends both a, a message of progress from a healthcare perspective, but it's also real tangible things that we can do to fix healthcare well-being. Absolutely. I think this is a major, major public health move. While we've been discouraged about other areas around future pandemic readiness, I think this act signifies an acknowledgement that we don't really have our hands around the distress that the pandemic had on our healthcare workers. We've talked about it in prior episodes on like the long tail and the epic impact that this will have. But I love seeing this act come out in a bipartisan way and that there is actually funding for things like peer education and support for those frontline workers who have really had to endure so much over the course of the last two years. And we really don't know how much further it's going to go. So I think it's a major piece of news and I celebrate the fact that it's out there and that there's funding for, for support. I agree. I think, I think in general, we've talked about the stigma of mental health and the feeling of bringing it up is some sort of sign of weakness. And you add the fact that healthcare workers are just inundated on a daily basis, and many of them don't feel like there is even time to admit this. So all of those things culminating in one, it just is a win-win, and it's good news for the healthcare community. For sure. I think it's great to see such holistic action being taken. We knew heading into this year, like one of the number one concerns across health systems was their resourcing and dealing with you know, turnover and burnout. And it's good to see action taken from a legislative perspective so that these health systems aren't just grappling on its own. And that it's not just focused on how do we fill this immediate resource gap, but the long-term benefits of how do we make this a sustainable profession. We know that mental health and burnout are not new to the healthcare industry, and they've only been exacerbated by the pandemic. So it's a good, good opportunity to pull through some long-term change. And speaking of long-term change, I know it's been a bit of a mixed bag recently when we talk about the public health action around COVID with there's some disappointing news around the lack of inclusion in the funding bill, but there was some good news coming out of the Senate Health Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, where the 
the help committee on March 14th, where they were able to you know, mark up and progress the Prevent Pandemics Act, the Prepare for and Respond to Existing Viruses, Emerging New Threats, and Pandemics Act. So it's a bipartisan vote, and it allows this to, to move forward to full Senate consideration. And it's good to see some action taking that longer-term view of, okay, this was a huge learning opportunity across the world. How can we make sure that future pandemics we're better prepared for, we're not you know, dealing with them for potentially as long, we can build on what we've learned over the last couple of years to, to really minimize the impact of future pandemics. And there's a lot of stuff even beyond pandemics in this bill, you know, consideration of would the CDC be a you know, Senate-confirmed position for the head? Would there be funding included for President Biden's ARPA-H healthcare initiative that's really looking to accelerate innovation similar to how DARPA did for the Defense Act. So still more to come as this goes to the floor, changes, progresses, et cetera, but definitely a good sign of progress moving forward. It's a good sign of progress. I'm, I'm going to be the naysayer in the room right now or maybe the Debbie Downer. It's still unfathomable to me when we look at how public health in general was not prepared going into this pandemic. And this bill is, is out there. It may become legislation, but I still think like what happens is as these pandemics get behind us, we forget, right? And then the monies get shifted to other areas. And so my concern is even with this piece of legislation, are the monies still going to be available? Are we really going to commit to these types of pandemic preparedness? because we haven't in the past. And this is where public health, time and again, I think just gets carved out. And when funding needs to happen in other areas of the healthcare sector, it is easy to pull from something that's not right in front of you. So I'd like to think that this act becomes legislation, that there's funding earmarked for it. You just wonder how sustainable that's going to be. So maybe I'm not being a Debbie Downer, but being more of a realist, because we've seen this happen repeatedly now. Granted, the coronavirus is definitely had more of an impact than past viral outbreaks, but I think what we've seen result from it, right, is we haven't learned, we haven't invested, we had a system that was outdated, we had a tracking system that was aged, we had an inability to share information, and I hope that this PREVENT Act starts to address some of that, but then the, the other piece of it is going to be pulling it through and, and continuing to keep things current so that when the next pandemic comes along, we are in a much better situation than we were with COVID. I think it's more of a realist point of view. Thank uh, you. You're welcome. <laughs> because if you think about the way we responded, it, 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 although this is our first kind of official pandemic here in the United States in our lifetime, it becomes a little bit of a have and have nots when you have a reactionary response to things versus proactively making sure that there is, quote, rainy day funds or rainy day opportunities for when this happens again. And I definitely think it's a, it's a watch out and an opportunity to be ready and actually be ready for something to happen again. Because as we talk to epidemiologists and, and health economists or healthcare futurists, this is not the only pandemic we're going to have and, and we just have to be ready. So I agree, I, I'm gonna call it a realistic point of view versus a pessimistic point of view. I think also, Team, it goes without saying, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, as this is one of the most pressing events that we are seeing play out. And it has an impact on most sectors, 
the interesting thing is how other sectors have responded and what the role of healthcare organizations and even more specifically pharma companies has been. So if we look at the course of the last you know, several weeks, we've seen many companies across sectors like the airline industry, the automotive industry, really curtailing operations in Russia. Drug makers, medical device manufacturers, and healthcare companies are exempted from US and European sanctions and as a result, what we're seeing is that they are continuing to provide needed access to medicines and medical equipment to contend with what's really becoming an international humanitarian crisis. And because international humanitarian laws exist, these organizations are, are basically committing to the fact that there are people on both sides of this, Ukraine and everyday Russians that still need access to care. So I don't think it's a really easy conversation to have without acknowledging that there's a political element to this, but I think for, for healthcare companies, they have an important purpose. And at this time, they continue to serve the people in both countries because not only do they have operations there, but because they really view it as, it's almost a, it's a part of their mission to continue to provide broad access to care and to therapies that are needed to individuals in, in both countries. So I think it's just interesting to see that drug makers specifically have really come under fire about this and they are holding steady in terms of their position that the role they play is very important to trying to help address the humanitarian crisis that's playing out. There's also some real tangible kind of scary situations happening in Ukraine as well, the World Health Organization, the WHO, just announced in the last several days, there is several counts of attacks on the health, Ukraine health system by Russian shelling and bombing. And there's something like 50 incidents, uh, reportable incidents that have occurred, registering multiple deaths and injuries at healthcare centers, whether that's retirement agencies or actual hospitals themselves. And they're usually from heavy weapons fire, and it's just a terrifying situation that happens. And, we are just seeing the beginning of a real healthcare emergency in, in Ukraine as well, on top of kind of the general idea of warfare as a topic. There, there's, there's some direct hits on, on hospitals and health systems. In such a fraught situation, there can mm -hmm. definitely be a lot of pressure on life science organizations to follow suit with some of these other companies and other sectors. And I think it really speaks to our current healthcare context, right? That that's not a simple ask for these companies and in a lot of cases could be really disruptive not only to the situation as from a humanitarian perspective in both Ukraine and Russia but across the globe as we still continue to grapple with this global pandemic and as we reflect on the realities of our truly global supply chain right it's not so easy to simply you know turn off or stop operations in one one location without impacting in a negative way potentially the entire globe absolutely I was just going to add one more thing, Jen. When you speak about supply chains and the, and the kind of flattening of global supply chains, there has some really nice good news stories out of this. Telehealth companies that are offering free digital health services in an effort to fill some of these healthcare voids that are happening in the war. I think one company was Vivio Health, and there's a few other e-health platforms based in kind of the Baltic states and then in Europe that are providing free telemedicine to citizens of Ukraine. And I think that it's a testament and an example of what you had mentioned. The healthcare world has become more global and flattened. And thankfully, in this aspect, telehealth is really coming to help some of these patients and their families.
speaking of telehealth, we have talked in previous episodes about this idea of everywhere care. And Moody's recently came out with a report that I think really provides even additional context that what we thought was happening is actually happening. And that as the pandemic has played itself out, more and more shifts in terms of the channels in which individuals are receiving care is shifting away from inpatient care in hospitals. And the direct result of that is that hospitals who have already been hit pretty hard in terms of cancellations of elective surgeries and so much volume of COVID patients coming through their doors, we're already contending with really difficult financial situations. But this shift away from inpatient care makes it even harder and results in even ever-increasing shrinking hospital margins. I agree, Mindy. I think it's unsurprising. And you think about what Moody's does. They're kind of a foreseer of financial forecasting and expectations for almost every industry. And so I think we kind of stop and take a look at this because it's pretty, it's pretty damning, the report. I think that when you think about telehealth services in general, right, I think initially in the pandemic, this is common knowledge. When the pandemic hit, we really made a quick switch to telehealth and reimbursement followed suit pretty quickly. But all of the studies indicate and a lot of data shows that telehealth basically went almost back down to pre-pandemic levels. And why is that? Well, reimbursement has actually not caught up to health systems. And I'd add one more reason why. There are many private telehealth companies that are winning in this space, and they're going directly to employers. And it seems to be a more efficient and effective play. So now health systems are going against the grain and maybe pausing on strategic elements around telehealth and going back to in-person outpatient care. That's going to take time, right? It's, it's going to take some time. And also, if you think about it, if I'm a patient and I'm going to utilize what my employer tells me to do from a telehealth perspective, and it's not based on the health system that I'm typically working on, it's a, it's a double dip for health systems and hospitals alike. So we know in the future that hospitals and health systems are going to be less about acute care in the hospital and more about ICU, step-down, post-surgeries, and when everything else is outside the four walls. What hasn't changed is the way that the operating systems exist in health systems. There are still the same four walls, the same square feet, the same regulations on staffing. You know, you and I were just talking about that, Mindy, right? Right, yeah. I mean, the staffing ratios remain the same whether you have beds filled or don't have beds filled, which means that your expenses remain the same. The other thing I would say, too, I think part of this shift that we're seeing is also a result of the growing advancements in drugs and therapies and medical devices. So we talk about telehealth, but think about how remote patient monitoring has come into play. Even thinking about how individuals themselves have expressed preference for care in the home outside of those four walls. So it feels like this is such a multifaceted challenge that hospitals and health systems are facing because there's so many inputs that are having an impact on what that Moody's report tells us, which is care is just shifting out of the hospitals. And I think you're right. Like, we're not surprised by it. I think we've seen the writing on the wall for a while. But what the pandemic did was really accelerate this. And as new entrants come into the market with new types of care models, that really puts additional pressure. I'll be curious to see the pendulum swing, right, over time from 
you know, we know the, the pandemic was really an accelerant towards remote care, telehealth, hospital in the home. But we are really grappling with a couple of key things. One, we've learned from the pandemic how important it is to be able to quickly flex the capacity of our hospitals. And that that inability to do that can cause real stress across the system if in terms of having not enough beds or not enough overflow capacity. So how do we take that lesson and maybe temper some of that shift away and prepare for this increasingly older population who we would expect to be much higher utilizers of care in general, but particularly inpatient care to provided in a hospital setting traditionally. So I think there'll be some thinking that has to be done in the system to figure out how do we make sure we're not overcorrecting? How do we remain agile so that we can level up or level down within the context of the hospital appropriately, both from a, an ability to deliver care, but also from the cost models they use to sustain delivery in the hospital versus delivery outside of it. One of the things on my mind related to that, Jen, is we have a senior population that is growing. It is, I mean, the swell is starting. However, we do know that many seniors have a preference to age in place. And so the opportunity may lie for hospitals in this idea of partnership with home health organizations or creating their own capability in a home health service where they can still meet seniors where they want to be met, which is no longer in the hospital. So this is the beginning of a conversation that is going to continue, but it gets my head thinking about a bunch of different things that we've talked about in terms of trends, where things are going, and now we're seeing kind of come to play in terms of actual numbers and that shifting of care outside of the hospital. Mindy, it's exactly what I was going to say with a little bit of a turn. We, and you specifically have said and continue to say that value from a healthcare system, hospitals, and payer perspective is going from volume-driven to outcome-driven. And I think we're in this really interesting space where we're transitioning from one to another, and hospitals are taking the brunt of this. And, you know, it's well known that value-based healthcare adoption has been much faster in Medicare Advantage plans, but there was just a... a, a released that there are better health outcomes that arise from folks that utilize Medicare Advantage plans than any other insurance, commercial included. And I think they it indicates that there is a very strong relationship between these full risk arrangements that seniors are signing up for and the consumerism around them. And so I know it sounds a little bit tangential that I'm bringing that up, but the idea is with health systems and hospitals' profit margins dwindling, because of the fluctuation and simply volume, they really have to go all in on value and, and outcomes or they're going to fail. Completely. And I think what we've seen, right, over the course of the last two years is the vulnerability of a system that is based on volume and transaction cannot exist. I mean, look at how hurt our provider sector was. There are hospitals that went out of business. There are practices that went out of business because they were so reliant on volume and on transactions. And so I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a second and just say, like, the train has left the station on value-based. The question is how quickly it pivots because I think two things come out of this. We see that standalone cottage practices are probably going to cease to exist because the economics do not work for them. But health systems are going to have to 
really have an appetite for new reimbursement models or else they continue to expose themselves to what a fee-for-service, volume-driven, transaction-driven system can do. And it's not as good as we think it is because we used to operate under the assumption you had to have 100% capacity in order to make it work. And even with 100% capacity, that wasn't working. So I'm going to wholeheartedly agree with you. I think value is, is the wave of the future. It's just how quickly does the system pivot to get there? Yeah, it's just for years, I think health system leaders didn't believe it. Right. And it wasn't because they right. didn't believe it fundamentally. It's they didn't believe it because CMS and there was no muscle behind it. And now there is. And, you know, they're going to need to pass down that value to their providers as well. Uh, because that's going to modify and drive behavior. If you incentivize and, and compensate your workers for providing value in an outcome-based world, the modification of behavior will follow. And what may actually add fuel to the fire on this is that the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, MedPAC, came out last week, right, and advised Congress on Medicare policy and payment issues and basically recommended in the report to lawmakers that clinician payments are adequate and they don't need to bump them in 2023. So that could be another reason why right, health systems have to start thinking about an alternative payment or reimbursement strategy. It is a little paradoxical because if you look at the MedPAC recommendation, you know, you could say, well, what the heck? It doesn't take into consideration inflation or why, how are these reimbursements flat when we just talked about, you know, the growing frustrations of the financial sustainability of a, of a practice or a hospital. But what we're saying is, well, that's why they have to change the way they go to market and operating in, in a more outcome-based and, and, and value-based way versus the traditional volume-based way, or they're going to fail. Well, Mindy and Ryan, we know the only constant in the healthcare industry is change. I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit TrendingHealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.